right if I put on my trusty hat? The doctor says I'm to wear this hat at all times, so here I am. That's good. Uh, now, I say nothing but the Book of, but the Book of Mormon would be put me up to anything like this. You know that. I mean, this is ridiculous. Here we are, but the Book of Mormon is worth it. It's worth anything, absolutely now. Now, at this moment, everybody asks certain questions. Uh, and the question we all ask here is, uh, what should I be doing? What am I doing here? Charles Adams' famous book on that says, what am I doing here? You find yourself in the most ridiculous situation. You say, what am I doing? How did I possibly get into this mess? But what am I, but what should I be doing? That is the question, you see. We know the world is in confusion because many, many people are doing things they should not be doing, and many, many people are not doing the things they should be doing. Now the shocking thought comes to us. Is it possible that nobody is doing what he should be doing? And the answer is yes. That's not only possible, that's the situation. When the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Joseph Smith in the grove, according to the oldest and best, the oldest and, and best account of all, that of Frederick G. Williams, written in 1832-33, right when Joseph Smith was only 26 years old, he dictated it, is different from the one we have in the, in the Pearl of Great Price here, uh, because the Lord speaks in the first person. Having difficulty seeing your face. Would you well, you're not missing anything, for heaven's sake. <laughs> Could we move your hand? How's that? <laughs> but the point is, it doesn't shelter my, my lamps anymore. Gosh. We'll take care of it. I know it's I thought they had better film than that, you know. <laughs> I guess they're using a cheap brand. They say, why well, use a good brand on that clown? <laughs> well, anyway, the, uh, the Lord said to Joseph, you see, and this is in the first person, you see, in the account we have here, he, he told me, and we have an indirect quotation, what the Lord told Joseph, but here the words to the prophet are, of course, Joseph Smith, only 14 years old, the world at this time lieth in sin, and there is none that doeth good, no, not one. And mine anger is kindled against the inhabitants of the earth to visit them in this ungodliness. There is none that doeth good. There are those that do well and have good intention, but that's not what it means, to do what they should be doing, the best possible thing to do what is good. I, if you break an arm, I might with the best of intentions try to mend it, but I could be doing a lot of damage. I'm not doing any good. I'm doing more harm, probably. Though I do well, I mean well. I get credit for that. The fact is we're not in a condition where anybody can do what he should be doing because we're not living by the heavenly order anymore. We're not living by the order to which, for which the earth was designed and created. We're a million miles away from it, completely independent. So the Lord says, and there is none that doeth good, no, not one, and mine anger is kindling. So none of us are doing what we're doing or where we should be. Uh, and so everyone, well, for example, everyone goes to college now. We didn't before when I was young. Very few people did. Everybody does now because they didn't have anything else to do. Uh, Gertie's famous, the famous crack in, in Faust. Remember, old Faust says, in the second Faust, it says, Gelehrter Mann, ach, bemoster uh, her, ach, ein Gelehrter Mann, studiert so fort, while there in the Standers Kahn. She says, here I am on an old moss-covered gentleman, still studying, because I can't do anything else, he says, that's all. We just get into the study habit, and we can't do anything else, and we write absurd articles, and we go on collecting. Anatole France wrote a wonderful story about that, Monsieur Pigeon, no, we won't go into that. However, there's a lot of relevant material we're going to bring in here you might not have heard before, and uh, we'll slap it on the board, and maybe we'll require you to remember what these words are someday. 
uh, if they're important. But the thing is that uh, this is where the Book of Mormon comes in. This is where the Book of Mormon comes in. It's like nothing else. It, and it, uh, it's the only answer you're ever going to get to that question in this dispensation. In reading the Book of Mormon, no one is ever doing something he shouldn't be doing. And most of the time, nearly all the time, he'd be doing probably the best thing he possibly could be doing. You see, this is a strange thing, because if it is not itself the best thing to be doing, it will quickly put you on to the best thing to be doing. The Book of Mormon, it either is the best thing, because it will have a direct effect on you. It will change you. It will work on you. It's a personal, intimate document. It will hit you, you see. And if it, you can't just read the Book of Mormon and nothing else. It immediately puts you on to the track of, of the, the high road to what you should be doing, like, like no other book. And it will lead you immediately, directly into the course of thought and the course of action of the greatest significance to yourself and to the world you live in. In other words, it will able, enable you to break loose as nothing else can. Only the Book of Mormon breaks loose because it does break loose. See? It's like nothing else. Now we have the direct revelations of the Doctrine and Covenant and so forth. But the Book of Mormon, it was brought by an angel, a tangible thing. He gave it to Joseph. He gets this clinical dis description of how the angel was. This is something completely different. Uh, one should ask the question, uh, I was going to ask the question, how many have read the Book of Mormon, or have you read the Book of Mormon? And it occurred to me, that's an utterly absurd question. It's like, like asking, have you seen the moon, or have you been to North America? Well, the answer is yes, I suppose, but you haven't told me a thing, you see. How, far, how much did you learn from that? See, that could mean anything, that could mean anything. And with the Book of Mormon, it can mean anything. If you say, I've read the Book of Mormon, I can remember when I would say that didn't mean anything. Of course, it means I, I piled up so many pages and got my gold star, and that was it. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what we're reading it for now. So we're pleased to say, oh, what do we do without Book of Mormon? That the Book of Mormon is like nothing else. It is totally different from the Bible by virtue of its genesis. Now, look at the Bible. Hundreds of years it took to give us the Bible, thousands actually, which include the Old Testament, of course. But it, the, the documents had to trickle in from diff, uh, different times and different places and different writers. It's, it's the Tanakh, uh, the Torah, and the Nevi'in, and the Prophets, and the uh, and Ketavim, and the, uh, and the literary writings the three, that make up the three things that make up the Bible, all from different authors. Some parts are poetry, some parts are prophecy, some parts are history, lots of chronicles and so forth, some parts are the law and from different times and different places and hundreds of different ma manuscripts until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. The oldest manuscript we had, say, of the, of the Book of Moses, the, of the Books of Moses, the first five books, was from the 9th century AD, the Ben Asher Codex. And uh, there are 8,000 different old manuscripts of the New Testament, no two alike. So all that has to be this collating and comparing and arguing about which passages are which and which order they come in, and then you have translation. There's no agreement about that. Year after year, there are new revised translations come forth. Well, if the last translation is reliable, why the new revised improved Cambridge or Anchor or whatever it is, <coughs> edition of the Bible. It's processing all the time, and so there you are. It's a very human document, of course it is. And uh, so is the Book of Mormon. It covers thousands of years. It has many authors. It was edited and so forth. But it was handed to us in a single passage, one bang, just like that. The whole thing, all edited, all in order, all translated. We don't have to argue about any of that stuff. If it is true, it comes to us whole, and there's no, nothing to slow us down on it. 
nothing to hold us up until we've decided what this passage means or what that is. It was translated directly by the gift and power of God. There's no need to argue about it. It's been words of exceeding plainness in a very small vocabulary. We may treat that later. But here it comes to us in this, in this package all at once. And uh, it is like, I say, like nothing, like not only like no other book, of course, uh, it's like nothing else. It's like no other thing. It was either brought by an angel or it came out of nowhere. You see, this, this single shot, instant, instant scripture, but instant history of a thousand years, just like that. Here, if you were some young person, anybody, I mean, who promised ahead of time that he was going to get out this book, who told about the angel and the gold plates and said, this is coming out, and everybody got all worked up about it and made fun about it, and the, the Painesville Telegraph and so forth were all spoofing. They all had great fun about the, the book of Pukai, they called it, and uh, the time was coming, and in a very short time, he has to produce the book. Well, wouldn't you panic at that occasion? Here, you're going to give him a big book. Well, I'll give him 100 pages. That's a whole oh boy. An, an assignment like that. How could you do it? He had eight weeks to do it in. And uh, so how are you going to do it? How are you going to face them? Well, he gave them the book, for heaven's sake. He gave it to them, and nobody ever bothered to look. After that, they were embarrassed and started to change the subject, started to talk about the weather. And that's true. The uh, people will raise all these questions about the Book of Mormon, but they won't wait for answers. You'll notice that. They'll find one parallel or two that say, well, for example, there was a dream that Joseph Smith's father had that was very much like Lehi's dream or something like that. Or there was a, uh, a standard dream, as a matter of fact. Or in the Book of Mormon, there were, there were lots of Indian wars. Well, there were Indian wars all around New York. Memories of them when Joseph Smith was a child. So that's where he got it from. See, one parallel or two, that would explain everything. Of course, it doesn't, doesn't explain anything because this is a vast book. This is a history of a thousand years from beginning to end with nothing left out. Every aspect of the history is properly taken care of. And it's never mixed up. There, no book has ever been written c that could do that. Uh, Shakespeare gets all mixed up in things. Holden, everybody, everybody does that. You can't help it. But you wouldn't excuse Joseph Smith if he did it, but it isn't. The book is not, there's no garbling in it at all, which is an amazing thing. <coughs> it's, you still have a time unraveling its complexities. Well, talking about the Book of Mormon then, uh, the fact that in an unbelieving world, if you don't believe well, uh, Edward Meyer, by far the greatest critic of Joseph Smith, the one to judge him, a great German historian, he died in 1928, 27, 27. He was, he was fascinated by the Book of Mormon. Well, I, I have a letter, which unfortunately I've lost because I have to answer the darn thing, uh, from a scholar in, uh, Especially in Central Asiatic languages, he's just written a very good work on, on Tibetan, on Tibetan epic, epic poetry. He's a, uh, translated works from Tibetan, and he's an authority on Central Asiatic language. He teaches at Oslo University, uh, uh, and uh, his name is uh, Mkoski, yes, uh, Frofkowski of all things, uh, Pyotr uh, Klafkowski. He's a Pole, and he speaks all, all these languages and so forth. And he writes me that he's been reading the Book of Mormon for 18 years. It's his favorite book. He can't leave. He's not a member of the church. He says, this book absolutely electrifies him. Where could it have come from? What is it? It's a vast work. It's a vast library that somebody just gave, handed to us overnight. And in the early 19th century, there was no scholarship. That was the, when Western scholarship reached its absolute uh, abyss. I mean, it never got lower. There was nothing being done at that time. There had been great stuff in the 18th century. From 1850 on, they really cut loose and got off to the races. That was the great age of scholarship after that, beginning with the Germans. But at that time, nothing going, no, no, no committee, nobody could have produced that at all. I mean, the materials were not available or anything else. So 
uh, Edward Meyer says, well, obviously it's easy to explain, not easy to explain, but you have to explain it this way, that the angel and the plates were a hallucination. But the, uh, the Book of Mormon is not a hallucination. That's the trouble. And he wouldn't read the Book of Mormon. It's very interesting. He was criticizing. You see, we, I've explained it now. Don't bother. It's, the English is too primitive, too crude. It can't possibly be anything but just made up by a hick. But he never, never found out what was in it because he never bothered to read it. Imagine that, the great Edward Meyer. But so it is. Then in an unbelieving world, you see, how do you account for the Book of Mormon? See, in a word that can't believe in another world or other possibilities, if you rule that out, what's your alternative? There are no alternatives. There are absolutely none. He couldn't have got it anywhere is the point, you see. That's why no one will take it up. They ask some very searching questions, and they should, but they never wait for the answers, you notice. They always leave the room as soon as you start giving, showing that this is possible, this is happening. Uh, I had the, the editor, Mr. Chandler, a religious editor of Los Angeles Times was here interviewing a couple of years ago now it is, and he would ask these questions, but as soon as he started to answer them, he'd cut it off and go to something else. And he had two secretaries there taking notes. He wouldn't allow me to use a tape recording, anything like that. He just had to take it down by hand, what he wanted, and uh, that was criticism of the Book of Mormon, you see. As soon as evidence popped up, well, let's turn to this now. <laughs> this is the way it goes. But the, this means this is a fact of enormous significance that can't be explained. It is what you'd call a singularity, so we'll write singularity on the board. Boy, this is education. <laughs> you, uh, tell me if I spell it right. Yes, singularity. <laughs> would be singular if I spell it right. Uh, a singularity is, by all, is a thing that does exist, but, but it should not exist, as you know. Uh, it cannot be described or comprehended like the universe before it started expanding, or like quasars, or like black holes. We know they exist. The astronomers and the physicists are absolutely sure they exist, no doubt whatever, yet they cannot describe them, they cannot conceive of them, they cannot imagine what they'd be like, and yet they exist. Now that's a singularity. The Book of Mormon is such a thing, if you won't accept Joseph Smith's story. But, and like black holes and quasars, its presence forces us to reassess all our ideas of reality, not just talking about philosophy or aesthetics or even theology here or ethics, the usual matter of religion, or are we talking about uh, happiness, the good life, success, and that sort of thing that, that TV preachers and uh, Norman Vincent Peale and others talk about. Uh, that has nothing to do with it. We're talking about real things here. And no Christian allegory, as I say, or morality. This stuff is to be taken literally, and therefore we're supposed to take it very seriously. It's been given to us because it concerns us, and it comes to us full of instructions how to use it. As a book, of course, it will turn most of us off because people don't read books anymore. We have other ways of learning things. We think they're good. But it comes to us as a written text. Hey, that's an idea. Uh, I'm doing something I've, excuse me, I've never done before in a class, namely, I'm going to refer to my own previous effusions on the subject. It might be useful. I'm going through some of them. I say they're not bad, and they save me a lot of work because I'm, I'm surprised how much research went into them when I read them today. There's a lot of stuff there I didn't realize. This guy was really knocking himself out there, and uh, I should remember that. I used to have to go see you in the early days of BYU. You had no library here at all. 
I used to have to go back to Berkeley or back to Harvard, someplace like that, to look up a few references. But now we have our libraries among the best. I mean, you don't have to go anywhere if you want to work in, in ancient religions and stuff like that. Uh, far, don't have to go far from the BYU. But uh, we're dealing with a special text now, and the knowledge that comes to us in the manner we say it's going to be, because it's more specific, it's something like a space probe. You send it out, and it brings information back, you see. And uh, this is what we have in the written word here. The only device we have, the only device uh, Arthur Clarke, who had uh, much to do with the discovery of radar and who's great popularizer of science, as you know, Arthur Clarke. He now lives in Sri Lanka. He uh, pointed out that uh, there's only one way we have of uh, projecting our knowledge over the past and uh, over distant places, and that's the written word. No technology can handle it. I mean, as long as the speed of light is our limit, uh, there's such a thing as star empires are utterly out of the question. So you send a message or a command to the nearest star, say to Alpha Centauri, in nine years you get a response, whether they've acted or not. Whether they, what do we do next? All right, answer back. Nine years. Nine years before you have any communication. That's out of the question, you see. And as far as uh, visual connections and things like that, you, you have to send a camera out and, and send the message back and as they've been doing now, that, that will do it, because otherwise sound waves and light waves alike uh, get suffused, get fuzzy, and you get nothing but the, but the uh, who is it who calls it, the, the terrible, the universal hum. That, the hum, the humming background, of course, that we, we get from space, the three degrees, and that sort of thing, and it all gets into a, it gets damped out. As soon as sound has gone very far, it gets dampened out. You, you can't distinguish. And the same with light. The best telescope in the world is very limited because light waves get suffused and damped out after they've traveled very far. So the only way is to actually go out there and come back and report. And the book is the most remarkable invention ever made, as, as Galileo says. It is the miracle of miracles. Uh, you can do things if uh, anything is to be hailed as the greatest of all miracles. It would certainly be writing, he said, how in, in 22 or 26 simple symbols you can convey not only what happened and what people's names were, but what they, what they did. You can do that with TV and so forth. But this is what they thought, their inmost thoughts and their most sensitive feelings can be conveyed by these 24, 22, 24, 26 letters of, of, of an alphabet. That's all it takes, and you can, nothing else will do that or ever has done that. So writing comes to us. It's a special message, and it's a special emissary. And that's why you get this emphasis in the book all the time, in the Book of Mormon. They talk about the importance of the record, how it's transmitted, how it's handed on, how the characters it's written in, the trouble they have writing it, preserving the pages and so forth, because this is the only way, as they tell us, this is the only way our knowledge can be preserved. That's why they had to go back and, and get the back, the, the brass plates. The only device that's defeated time and space, and it does that. As Galileo says, this is certainly the one, but it's not a human invention. No, of course, we're told it's a superhuman invention. And that's what put me on to this, i referring to some other stuff. Uh, the writing is so minimal, you see, so extremely simple. Uh, any instrument that will make a scratch on any surface will record any message, the most subtle, inmost thought of men, for any period of time over any amount of space. It's astonishing that what you can do. Of course, it has to be a, a rather permanent surface and things like that. But it's so simple the way it's done. All I have to do is scratch something on a surface and you've done it. You don't need, and to read it again, you don't need elaborate electronic equipment or anything like that. And uh, 
But the price is this. This is where it comes, of course. How do you, how do you unravel it? How do you put it in the receiver? I say you don't have to have an elaborate electronic machine to feed it back into. You have to feed it back into yourself. You have to riddle. To read means to riddle. It's the same word as to read. You have to unriddle. You have to read me a rid. Uh, read me a riddle. You have to unriddle what is written there. That's, that's up to you, you see. This is the thing. Reading is an act of faith. Say, when you read, you riddle. You use your wits. That's why I say to say, have you read the Book of Mormon? doesn't mean a thing. And how much you've applied to it here. You have to extract the meaning, and you have to do almost all the work. And there's an immense lot of meaning in, in most of the words, uh, verses of the Book of Mormon. An enormous lot. I've never noticed it till this year. I was in a Sunday school classroom here now in the Book of Mormon, and I had completely missed the point of nine-tenths of the verses in the Book of Mormon. I, I missed them entirely, and there it was all the time. You see, you get out of it. Well, it's there all right. It's like a Urim and Thummim. You have to use effort to use a Urim and Thummim. Joseph Smith, you know, could only use it when he was in top form. Remember when he was out, he had a quarrel with Emma or something like that, it wouldn't work. And it requires just as much effort to use a urim and thumb of it does to use a dictionary and a grammar, far more as a matter of fact. So uh, when you read here, every sentence is a whole proposition here, and it presents a number of possibilities. It may or may not contain a vast amount of information, uh, and uh, that's for you to find out here. So all reading is a miracle, actually. There's no reason. It's like the flight of the bee. There's no reason why it should take place. But there's no reason why you should be able to read, except there's something takes place in your mental process that's transferred from that. I was reading last night. I was reading an Arabic text. And said, now, this is quite remarkable. See, in an Arabic text, you don't. You do not uh, have any vowels written. You do not separate the words, just a flow of consonants, nothing else. You do not have any capital letters. There are no capital letters. There is no punctuation whatever. There is no division between paragraphs, sentences, things like that. It's all just a string of constants and nothing else. And it's the easiest thing in the world. When they start putting in, when they start dividing up the words and putting in the constant to help you out, which is required for the Quran, of course, because they, you can't take risks of giving your own interpretation. So they put it, it's much harder to read when they try to help you along the same way. The same thing with Hebrew. A, a pointed Hebrew text is an annoyance. It gives you a headache. Take away all those shetties, all those little dots and things, and it's much easier to handle. And then you hear the sound, and it speaks to you. But how, why does it speak to you? See, this is just the way you react to it. It's, and these things are intuitive as far as that goes, but when you read English, it's the same thing. What, what marvels might be there that, you, that you're not aware of at all? So the letters are meaningless. I'm going to make three points here from this. I have time for that, yes. Three points from this, uh, something I wrote years ago, and uh, that is, are quite relevant to the Book of Mormon. Now, the man says here, few people realize that in Joseph Smith's day, no really ancient manuscript was known. None at all. Egyptian and Babylonian could not be read. The Greek and Latin classics were the oldest literature available, preserved almost entirely in bad medieval copies, no older than the Byzantine and Carolingian periods at the earliest. Of course, now today it's a different story entirely, but not in Joseph Smith's time. But if Joseph Smith is right, the record should be as old as the human race itself. For he tells us a book of remembrance was kept in the language of Adam, we told in the sixth chapter of the book of Moses. What does the actual state of the documents attest? Now, if writing was evolved gradually and slowly, as everything is supposed to have done, there would be vast accumulations of 
transitional scribblings, people trying this out, trying that out, throwing them away and so forth, as, as countless crude and stumbling attempts would leave their marks on stone, and that was predicted and so forth, on stone and bone and clay and wood over countless millennia, groping trial and error. That's the way it's supposed to happen, you see. Only there are no such accumulations of primitive writing anywhere. No such records exist anywhere, though they should. And slate palettes with what are some, the, the Egyptian palettes, beginning the palette of Nimr, the hunting palette, and so forth. The pre-dynastic palettes, slate palettes you find in Egypt with, with pictures on it. It's supposed to be the most primitive stumbling uh, writing at all. It's very funny that the, the oldest one, the, the palette of Nimr, has a picture of the pharaoh, and he's accompanied by his chadi, by his scribe, and the scribe is carrying the two inkwells of red and white ink that, that a scribe uses to write on paper. And this is supposed to be the old, a crude scribbling on stone, and he's got his scribe here, and the scribe's been writing. No, this, uh, this is realized today, uh, given the evolutionary hypothesis here, any healthy, normal, growing boy can describe in convincing detail how long the naive child of nature everywhere drew crude pictures to convey his simple thoughts, and how out of this process moved everywhere inexorably toward the final stage in alphabetic writing. Now, here I'm quoting from two eminent scholars. One says, the, native the naive child of nature draws his crude pictures, and the other says, everywhere, everywhere, inexorably toward the final stage, it moves forward toward alphabetic writing. What do you find? Well, if it really happened that way, we would find traces of evolving writing everywhere, as the man says. Veritable middens of scratched rock, bones and shells would attest the universal groping toward the inexorable final stage <coughs> over tens of thousands of years, while the clumsy transitional forms would outnumber the proper writing by at least a million to one. But no transitional forms have ever been found. It's a surprising thing. They'd last too. Only vast accumulation of attempts at writing simply do not exist. There's no evidence whatever of worldwide groping toward the goal. Well, anyway, having made this logic, lucid and logical statement, the author, the one I last quoted, said, it is surprising that the ultimate stage in evolution was only achieved in a very few spots on the globe. Not everywhere, if it happened, he says it happened everywhere, but you don't find it. And we find only a very few systems of writing, says the German scholar David, only very few systems of writing, and even these are so much alike and so closely related in time and space that their independence appears to have been at least problematical. Chances are there's only one system of writing known in the world, and it comes all of a sudden there, and it's fully blown. It had to be otherwise, because Doblehofer, work on the subject, defines picture, pictorial writing, he calls it pictorial writing, which he says is incredibly ancient as a series of images which can possibly be read accurately by any spectator. See, I draw pictures, a series of little pictures, and they're crude and simple, but anybody can tell what they mean because a simple childish mind wrote them simple childish to read them, you see. And Kurt Sather, the great Egyptologist, agrees with that. He says, a pure picture writing is one which could be read by, in any language at sight, because it's pictures, it's not a language. And right here, the issue settled, there is no picture writing. If ever there was a true picture writing, has not yet been discovered. Where on earth is a single inscription to which any and all beholders, scholars and laymans alike, regardless of their own language and culture, would give the identical interpretation? There have been such, but there are no two people interpret them alike. In other words, they're not simple picture writing. 
And Doblehopper himself confirms this when he assures us, I'm quoting, that the most primitive pictorial writings translate abstract ideas with the aid of symbolical signs. When, when you're showing abstract ideas instead of a simple house, a tree, a man, a dog, a horse, abstract ideas, and you're conveying them not with a picture of a house, a dog, a horse, but with symbolical signs that have to be memorized or recognized by somebody else. That's not picture writing at all. And that's the only kind you find, he says, where you're, where you're using the most primitive pictorial writings are just symbolical signs and abstract ideas. Now, that's a strange conclusion to come to. No wonder they don't agree on that sort of thing. What I'm saying here is that we have this thing as a gift from heaven. This thing's been handed down, this keeping of the records, which is such an obsession with the, in the Book of Mormon, and especially in the Book of Ether, as you know. They have been handed down from the beginning, and without them, they've been come forth in their purity, of course, we wouldn't have, if they hadn't been hidden down, we wouldn't have them at all. Like the earliest Egyptian documents, the Babylonian tablets bearing, I'm quoting again, the oldest written signs so far are highly stylized and cannot be read. They're the oldest. And so it goes. Now, this is an important thing, too. Well, this comes in another connection. If Joseph Smith is right, books and writings are a gift to man from heaven, for it was given unto as many as called upon God to write by the spirit of inspiration. We're told this again in Moses 6-7, when he's talking about Adam. God gave that knowledge to man. It's a very simple knowledge, but very subtle, very complex. The most elusive, the most, as I say, the most sophisticated, the most marvelous invention ever to come forth. So did anyone invent it? The Egyptians believed that writing is a sacred trust to be given to high priests and scribes to keep him and his people ever in touch with the mind and will of heaven. Now that's the whole idea that, uh, uh, oh, what's his name wrote a book called The, uh, the Sent One, The King and the Sent One. Um, um, uh, got him here. Yeah, Riddengreen, Gail Riddengreen, essentially the apostles. He wrote on this subject, he says the, uh, the king he, 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 uh, the knowledge is communicated to the king. It is a mysterious character bearing upon the great mysteries of heaven and earth, the hidden things, and is a revelation of the hidden knowledge by the gods. We can style it by God, he says. We can style it primordial revelation. So there's a primordial revelation, and the purpose of writing is to hand down this primordial revelation. It comes, in other words, there was a book of Adam, and a great deal has come about in recent years about this book of Adam. It's come forth recently. Uh, now, incidentally, the oldest writing is used for business. You say it's for counting bales of, bales of wool and kegs of beer and loaves of bread. That's what it's used for, but always in the temple, always in, and only in temple accounts. That's what it's for, you see. It's the business of writing. They call it the Gebrauchsschrift, the business schrift, and the, uh, and the uh, Festschrift, which is used for the, uh, for the holy writing. So the temple is where you find it. Uh, as Hatha says, hieroglyphic is correctly named for only on the walls of temples is its survival from prehistoric times. So wherever you find it, from first to last, ancient writing remains in the hands, not of businessmen, but of priests. It's a holy and secret thing, imparted only to the elect, zealously withheld from all others. He who divulges it, we read in a typically holy book, dies a sudden death and immediate cutting off. Thou shalt keep very far from it. It's to be read only by a scribe in the workshop whose name has been duly registered in the house of life. That's from a very old writing, the uh, Papyrus 850, uh, 825a. Uh, only the prophets may read and understand the holy books is the rule. Each system of writing is effective only as a, as a seal on holy books. It's a cryptogram, a secret formula which the profane do not know. It's hermetic. See, the idea of a holy book that's taken away from the earth. Now, this idea is common. 
the idea of a holy book that's taken away from the earth and restored from time to time, or is hand, this is the Book of Mormon, you see, or is handed down secretly from father to son for generations, or is hidden up in the earth, preserved by ingenious methods of storage with precious imperishable materials to be brought forth in a later date and more righteous generation. That's becoming increasingly dis uh, familiar with the discovery and publication of evermore apocryphal works, Jewish and Christian and others. The, uh, and then, well, this is administration. So this is the idea. Now, the letter by itself, we say it takes a process uh, like the flight of a bee, a miraculous process that can't be explained, but you'll notice how you put things together. A letter by itself is meaningless. It has to go into a world. Of course, it's symbolic. The whole Kabbalah is based around that. There's a whole gematria, a whole technique, a whole science based on the significance of single letters and the combinations, not only to form words, but in any combination, what they mean, that they have a, a mystic combination forming words as numbers or anything else. But the letters have to be put together to make words. The words have to be put together to make phrases, because phrases, I mean, uh, or assume it's a single word sentence. There's such a thing as uh, Gardner, Alan H. Gardner, the great Egyptologist, uh, author of the Big Grammar, wrote a book on, on a sense, the nature of a sentence. Uh, he gives the example of rain as a sentence. Rain is a sentence, you see. Now here's where your, your work comes in. The, the single word is rain. Now that's a sentence. It, it tells a whole story, but it depends on how it's said or how you react to it. If I say rain, I mean, is it raining again? Actually, we're having rain. I say disgustedly rain. That means it's raining again. All it is is rain, an exclamation part. It depends on the context in which it's found. You have to supply that. If I say rain, can it possibly be raining again? If I say rain, at last we're having rain. And so it goes on. There are dozens of ways of which that one word will make a sentence. But it doesn't make sense until you have given it, put it in the sentence, the sentence you want it to mean. You can see what you can get away with when you're interpreting the scriptures, if you do that way. Uh, if you say a single word like alas, it means there's a certain situation is implied here, and you get into the situation. So the letter by itself, the word by itself, uh, but the word by itself has to be in the phrase. The phrase has to be in a sentence. And the sentence, the ancients, any self-contained message is a book. The sentence is part of a message. The message is a book. No matter how short it is, it can just be three sentences. It's always a book with the ancients. Okay, length has nothing to do with it. But, but books were rent, meant to be put in libraries. It's a funny thing that writing began with libraries. It didn't begin with a single letter, which is put together to make a word, which is put together to make a sentence and so forth. No, it began with the library, Ooh, with the... With the uh, with a hermetic concept of a hologram that contains all knowledge. Yet you start out at the top, it's like Adam. You begin with the perfect man and run downhill from there. That seems just the very opposite of what we say. When we evolve, we get a little better as we go on and on and on. That was the delight to see of the Victorian age when I was, uh, well, I'll read you something from the beginning of this article. It had nothing to do with what I was talking about, but I think it's quite relevant to what we're talking about right now where we say, we have all grown up in a world nurtured on the comfortable Victorian doctrine of uniformitarianism. The idea that what happens in this world is all just more of the same. What lies ahead is pretty much what lies behind for the same forces that are at work on Earth today as they were in the same manner, with the same intensity, the same effect at all times in past and must go on operating inexorably and irresistibly just the same way forever. Now, we agree with the basic proposition that throughout the universe, as far as you go, and here we, we're a million miles away from the fundamentalists, other worlds like unto this, and other worlds hitherto formed, 
other worlds, the same elements put together in the same way, with the same pattern, the same form, the same, you will find them everywhere to the end of the universe. So that's going on. There's a steady process here. What's been going on here has been gone in other worlds. It's, uh, this isn't the beginning. It doesn't begin out of nothing, and it doesn't end in nothing. It goes on continually. But they take it this way. They apply it to this world as the steady building up everything better and better. Constant amelioration, you see. There's no real cause for alarm, but this is the conclusion we drew. Uh, in a world where everything is under control beneath the watchful eye of science, as evolution takes its undeviating forward course, steady, sure, reliable, imperceptibly slow and gentle, gratifyingly predictable, according to an eminent British scholar of the 1920s, uh, E. Bavan. He says here, this is what we believed when I was in high school. <clears throat> the skies as far as the utmost star are clear of any malignant intelligence. Even the untoward accidents of life are due to causes uncomfortably, uh, comfortably, excuse me, comfortably impersonal. The possibility that the unknown contains powers deliberately hostile to him is one the ordinary modern man can hardly entertain, even in imagination. Everything is lovely, nothing can go wrong because evolution is taking us steadily, slowly forward, ever toward the better and better. What happy reassurance is that. In such a world, one needed no longer run to God for comfort. The matter-of-fact, no-nonsense approach of science has since the days of the Miletian school and the ancient atomists banished all childish fears and consiled horrendous and spectacular aspects of human past and future to the realm of myth and fantasy. And yet, what was required reading in, in, in the honors a couple of years ago? The violent universe. The, the dangers that surround us. We're in a, in a tremendous, among powers that could, there's no reason why we should exist. The fact that this earth is so comfortable for us in a universe that is so utterly hostile. It's a totally different picture, see, the, with these powers in the universe. Everything is being swallowed up. The universe here, there's nothing hostile. Everything is impersonal. Uh, you, have, uh, you have nothing to worry about. How it backfired, you see, this is the point. You, uh, you say there's nothing there, there's nothing outside. Um, the atomists uh, and the, well, you begin with the Miletian schools, I say, with especially Anaxagoras, <coughs> Xenophanes, the friends of Pericles, and, uh, and with the Stoics. Uh, there is nothing there, there is just, there's nothing to fear, there are no monsters, there's no boogeyman out there, uh, there's no goblins, there's no devil, there's nothing like that. In fact, there's nothing out there. And then there's a horrible gas. What? Nothing? Let me see now, we're, we're going into nothing. Uh, there's some good pieces about that. Oh, lines from the, the Rubiac. Uh, one moment in annihilation, this is how it backfired in my day, and then we all started to learn the Rubiac, you see. One moment in annihilation's waste, one moment of the wine of life to taste, the stars are setting and the caravan starts for the dawn of nothing. Oh, make haste. You don't have much time, you're going nowhere. So the fact that there's nothing out there was supposed to, to Sassar, Lucretius wrote his great De Raramentura on that subject, you see. There are no, all these superstitions about the hereafter, heaven, hell, and that stuff. Forget about it, there's nothing to fear out there. There is just nothing. And then they did this double take, the horrible shock, much worse, you see. I have seen the eternal footman hold my cloak and snicker, and in short, I was afraid, you see. <laughs> because there was nothing out there. It's something to be quite terrified by. And this is what we run into. You have your choice, you see. I, I prefer the other stuff, and there's 
there's evidence that there is the other stuff. But you see, we have in writing here, we have in writing for us a, a most choice document. It's not another book. It's not like any other book in existence. It's not like anything else. It is a standing revelation, a standing miracle, as we have it here. No one could have produced, I say, this book of a thousand years, covering every page of the cultural, historical, intellectual, <laughs> literary nature. I mean, what a miracle of condensation, as we'll see. And uh, But the point is, it's not just written as a tour de force to show what can be done and so forth. Every word of it is significant. It's meant for us. It's, it's directed to us. It's very urgent that we know this. This is directed to you, you Gentiles, that you may learn to be wiser than we have been. And we're in a very parlous state, and this tells us what it is in the Book of Mormon, is the only thing. If you, if you start to panic, grab for the Book of Mormon, and it will be all right. We'll end with my slogan for the class. It's Mosiah 4 and 11. Oh, what choice words here. 4 and 11 and 12, actually. Now, uh, come on here. Here we are. If you have known the goodness and have tasted his love and have received the remission of your sins and caused you joy, even so, I would that you should notice, know his goodness and his love. He means to do best, you see. I would that you should remember and always retain in remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness. Behold, I say unto you, if you do this, you shall always rejoice. You'll have nothing to worry about if you realize God's greatness what his intentions are and what his power to carry out those intentions is. Nothing to worry about. And don't worry about yourself, your career, and all that sort of rot. Remember, you should always keep in remembrance, hold in remembrance, your own nothingness. So I remember my nothingness, so I don't have anything to worry about. And then I remember God's goodness, and then I have something to cheer about, you see. So it's, it's quite marvelous. But this Book of Mormon, I mean, it's, it has everything in it, which we hope to find out.